0: You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. It's
1: been almost 3000 years and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's talk about myths baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths, Baby, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: What up? I am Dramos, host of the Life as a Gringo podcast. This is a show for the Nosabo kids, the the 200 percenters. Here we celebrate your otherness and embrace living in the gray area. Every Tuesday, I'll be bringing you conversations around personal growth,
3: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
4: Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson, and I'm Holly Fry.
0: Today we have an interview. I'm really excited about it. It's with Dennis Carr, who is the Carolyn and Peter Lynch Curator of American Decorative Arts at the Museum of Fine Arts, in Boston, also known as the MFA. And it's about something I completely missed in history class. Uh, it's really easy to think of globalization as a recent phenomenon and also to think of Europe as the biggest influence on colonial art and colonial life in North and South America. But as we're going to talk about today, globalization really started in the 16th century. And Asia's influence on the American colonies was huge.
4: So to set the stage a bit, the MFA actually got in touch with us not long after our episode on uh, Katsushika Hokusai, and that episode followed Tracy's visit to the MFA to see its Hokusai exhibition, and we talked a little bit in it about how the work of Hokusai and other Japanese artists influenced European artwork after Commodore Perry forced Japan to reopen its borders in 1853, and at that point those borders had been closed for more than 200 years.
0: So obviously the fact that it was reopening borders meant that they had been open at some point in the past and so had the borders of many other Asian nations and that's what we're going to talk about today how Japan, China, India and other Asian nations had an enormous influence on colonial art starting all the way back as we said, in the 16th century so let's move it over to the interview so today I have with me Dennis Carr, who's the Carolyn and Peter Lynch Curator of American Decorative Arts at the Museum of Fine Arts, Boston, also known as the MFA. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Dennis.
5: It's my pleasure, Tracy. Thank you.
0: Um, So the exhibition you've just curated is called Made in the Americas, the New World Discovers Asia. Can you kind of describe the story that you were trying to tell with your curation of this exhibition?
5: Well, the story of the exhibition begins in the 16th century, when for the first time, there's direct trade between Asia and the Americas. And that trade, which lasts for two and a half centuries, impacts art production throughout Latin America, places like Mexico and Peru, but also Brazil and North America, cities like Boston and Philadelphia and New York and even Quebec City all are impacted by the importation of Asian objects. And artists in these locations started making art that looked a lot more like the Asian imports.
0: So the exhibition itself is really focused on decorative art, and decorative art, obviously, from your title, is your focus. Is this same international fusion also present in paintings and sculptures of the time as well?
5: It is, but a little less so in oil paintings, which are often done in a European tradition. But what's interesting to me are the unusual kinds of paintings that are made in places like Mexico City. There's a technique that develops in the 17th century in response to the importation of Japanese lacquerware that's inlaid with mother-of-pearl. And these paintings are called enconchado, literally shelled or shellwork paintings. Concha in Spanish means shell. And these paintings are literally inlaid with thin sheets of mother of pearl. And then the artist builds up the surface with gesso and then overpaints with oil paints and glazes and creates this incredible luminescent surface uh, for paintings.
0: So a, a major source of this influx of Asian objects into the Americas during this time, came from what was known as the Manila Galleons, so the whole trade between Manila and Acapulco. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, these galleons and and how that whole trade route came to be?
5: Yes. After 1565, the Spanish um, were in control of the Philippines, and after they founded the colonial city of Manila, they began trading directly between Manila and Acapulco, Mexico, and for roughly two and a half centuries, the Spanish ships, laden with goods collected from across Asia—Chinese textiles and Japanese lacquerwares and folding screens, uh, carved ivories from the Philippines, textiles from India, and of course spices—and even Asian slaves were brought on board these Manila galleons that sailed. From Manila northward towards Japan following the trade winds, they would make landfall on the western side of what's now the Americas and then head south, land in Acapulco and sell their wares in these spectacular fairs that happened. You can imagine what, you know, Acapulco would come to life uh, when the ships arrived from Manila.
0: That's one of the things that was really so fascinating to me about this exhibition is that we all kind of learn in elementary school that when Columbus made his original voyages, he was looking for a sea route to get to Asia. And then it seems like that story just started, it sort of stops there. <laughs> a lot of kids then don't learn that even though there wasn't a direct sea route to Asia, there was still a lot of trade with Asia, with sort of the Americas as a bridge. And so seeing all of these objects that are evidence of that uh to me, was hugely fascinating in the exhibition.
5: I would say this is history that I wasn't taught in school. You're right. The history I was taught is about the connection between Europe and the New World, but not about Asia and the New World. So this exhibition tries to tell a story that I think will be unfamiliar to many who come to see the show.
0: And this is sort of the 450th anniversary of the establishment of this Manila to Acapulco trade, right?
5: It is, in fact, yeah. The first ship sailed in 1565, 450 years ago. And then regular trade begins in 1573 and lasts until 1815, a really long time. And, of course, this is long before the Pilgrims landed in (laughs) Massachusetts (laughs) or, you know, there are settlers in Jamestown. I mean, the history of the Americas begins much earlier than – the standard story of the formation of uh, the British colonies in the Americas. And the cities of Latin America were very, very wealthy and very cosmopolitan and globally connected from an early date.
0: And that's also much earlier than we think about the phenomenon of globalization. I would say that the average person today thinks of globalization in terms of McDonald's and Starbucks being all over the world when really this is a, a process that started hundreds of years
1: ago.
5: Yeah, today we live in a globalized world. Everybody understands that. But the roots of this world we live in today um, started back in the 16th century uh, with the discovery and settlement and colonization of the Americas by the European powers. And once the Americas come on the map, so to speak, they, became, they become a linchpin in the trade between Asia and Europe and Africa.
0: So during the time that this, this ongoing trade was happening between Manila and Mexico, uh, at the same time during part of it, the Rococo and Baroque styles were really having their heyday in Europe, which were similarly very heavily embellished and very colorful. Where do you think are the chicken and the egg in, in this situation? Was it that Europe was just primed to really love all of these Asian designs because those uh, those aspects were already very, very popular in European artwork? Or is it the other way around?
5: Well, Europeans have always been fascinated by Eastern art. Um, of course, Europe was trading with Asia going back a long, long time. But the direct trade routes that are established in the 16th century allow a much larger quantity of goods to be traded and brought to Europe and to Europe's colonies in the Americas. And there was great interest in Europe among intellectuals and tastemakers in the 17th century. And this develops into a style that goes hand in hand with the Baroque and Rococo styles that you mentioned. That's called the chinoiserie or In the Chinese taste. People didn't call it chinoiserie in the period. It's a term that we've applied to this um, artistic style that begins in the late 17th century and reaches its height by the middle of the 18th century. And the chinoiserie resulted in really interesting buildings and textiles and ceramics and paintings and furniture and any number of objects made. In Europe and the Americas, in an Asian style, and they're not exactly correct. You know, they don't look a lot like Asian art per se. Um, they're inventive and creative, and very fanciful interpretations of Asian styles, and um, and this is very very popular um, throughout Europe, both in the courts but also among the gentry.
0: I think my most favorite object in this exhibition is the, a desk and bookcase from the mid-18th century from Mexico. And it has that chinoiserie interior, which is this va- very vibrant gold on red. Um, and that's you have spoken about this particular piece uh, on a video on the MFA site and in other places. Can you talk about this desk and bookcase? And what makes it so amazing in terms of an object that represents this whole global trade?
5: This is also one of my most favorite objects in the exhibition. And it's never been seen before. It's in a private collection and it's never been in a museum exhibition before. So it's really exciting to present such a spectacular object to the public. And the reason I like it so much is it does, you know, embody this new global style that develops. Um, during the colonial period in the Americas. So the outside of this spectacular object is made up of very intricate inlays of wood and bone in an um, Islamic pattern that descends from the Moors' occupation of Spain. Remember, the Moors controlled much of Spain for nearly eight centuries, and the Spanish finally kicked the Moors out of southern Spain in a decisive battle, and that this happens in 1492. The same year, Columbus discovers America, and Spain shifts its attention across the Atlantic to the New World. So the outside of this desk has a style that descends from the Moors period in Spain, uh, but that's still very popular in places like Mexico, um, where this piece was made in the mid-18th century. But the inside is a spectacular red interior with gold painting, as you mentioned, in a chinoiserie style, But what's really fascinating about this object, when you open the doors, and I I should mention that this desk has a twin that's in a museum collection in Puebla, Mexico. And if you put these two desks together, there are four maps on the two doors of each desk. And these maps show a property in Veracruz, Mexico, that was owned by a very wealthy Spanish family going back to the 16th century. And... I've studied indigenous map making traditions from the 16th century, and we've in fact compared the maps in the desk to 16th century maps of this property in Veracruz, and they relate very closely stylistically. So it suggests to me that an indigenous painter was at work on the interior of this very elaborate desk and bookcase, but it's mixed with the chinoiserie taste for Asian objects, so it's a real—it's a hybrid between indigenous map-making traditions and the new chinoiserie style that was popular in the 18th century.
0: Uh, and the, the estate that's actually mapped on the inside of those doors was one of Mexico's earliest free African settlements. Correct?
5: It was, and in fact, there in the maps of this uh, property, we see many Africans depicted, and they're likely to be the descendants of the original. African slaves that were brought to Mexico in the 16th century.
0: The whole thing is just amazing to have that many influences in one object, uh, that we can look at today.
5: This, a piece like this is only possible after the 16th century when all the world's great land masses are finally interconnected and communicating through trade.
0: So, Holly, I, I sent you a picture of this desk because I was so excited about it.
4: It is so beautiful. I, it, I feel like that's one of those pieces of furniture that, take it out of the historical context, just pretend you had a piece like that in your house and you look at it from the outside and go, oh, that's lovely. And then you open it up and it's this beautiful red and gold, just magically decorated, absolutely beautiful piece. Like, I wouldn't even care what was stored in the the desk at that point. I just want to look at that beautiful Sparkly work on the interior it still
0: amazes me even after having seen the thing and talked to Dennis Carr about it that uh, there are that many pieces of different influences in this one desk and it's it's pair that's in a different museum. So before we move on to the next part uh, of our interview, let's have a brief word from a sponsor that sounds grand.
2: Culture, and invite you to walk in your authenticity. Listen to Life as a Gringo as a part of the Michael Thuda Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
6: Hey everybody, welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter.
7: A Story of California Corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: So next up, we are going to hear about an indigenous resin technique that did not make it into my original set of questions because there are just so, so many things that I could have asked Dennis Carr about. So I was delighted when this one came up naturally as part of the answer. Uh, it is just, it's a fascinating use of local materials to make art. Another thing that I like about the exhibition in general and this piece specifically is that several of the objects in it, uh, in a, in a way preserved indigenous art and craft techniques even as their subject matter changed, right? So we have cochineal dye, which was a traditional dye that already existed in uh, in Central and South America, used to make tapestries in an Asian style, um, or the Jesuit religious order commissioning things that were made with indigenous featherwork techniques. Uh, are, are there any other examples where in, in working with curating this exhibition, you found things where it, it seemed like Normally, the story of of colonialism in North and South America is sort of one of a European influence steamrolling over everything. Uh, But this particular exhibition has stories of things that were preserved. Uh, Can you you think of other examples of that being the case?
5: Yeah, there were many indigenous artistic traditions that are preserved during the colonial period. And one that comes to mind are um, the indigenous lacquer work traditions of both Mexico and South America. Indigenous artists were, before the arrival of the Spanish, for many, many years, creating objects with a hard, resinous, colorful surface that was um, used to waterproof gourds and other vessels for carrying liquids and foods. And during the colonial period, they used the same resinous material. In South America, it was called Mopa Mopa, which comes from the mopa-mopa tree. Uh, It comes out of the flowers of the mopa-mopa tree, and it it hardens quickly, so it had to be chewed to soften it. And the indigenous artist would mix this mopa-mopa with uh, pigments and clays to make it opaque and colorful. And once once they chewed it to soften it, they would stretch it in their teeth into super thin sheets that would then be cut out with designs and patterns, and those patterns were applied to the surfaces of objects. And there's a really fascinating fusion between indigenous craftsmanship and the imported Asian lacquer objects that really had a tremendous impact throughout the Americas. So that's one tradition, South America. And there's a second tradition in Mexico. Along the same lines, they used different materials. In this case... Um, They're using chia seed oil, chia seeds are now popular again, Um, (laughs) the chia seed oil and ahe, which is a fat derived from an indigenous insect, mixed again with clays and pigments to create um, a hard resinous surface, which they apply to a number of objects in imitation of the Japanese lacquers.
0: To move for a moment to North America, another of the objects in the exhibition that I really like is a little stoneware teapot from China that dates back to 1750. And at that point, obviously, Britain was still controlling trade to the North American colonies and tea was extremely popular. So there were lots of imported objects that were all about tea and serving tea and drinking tea how did Asian imports to North America change after the Revolutionary War once the United States started managing its own trade agreements?
5: Yeah, this story of the China trade is better known to our audiences. Um, It's the story of direct trade between um, the newly founded United States of America and Asia. This trade wasn't permitted under the British government, but became possible in the 1780s. And, for the first time, North Americans from you know, New England and the Mid-Atlantic were able to custom order objects right from China and sail ships directly to China. And there was a quite a brisk trade um, between America and Asia in the late 18th century. And the teapot you mentioned was owned in Salem, Massachusetts by a ship captain who likely imported it in um, the mid or late 18th century. And we also have a wonderful embroidered Indian palampore or uh, bed cover hanging. It's absolutely spectacular. And like the teapot, it has a local history as well. From the 18th century, it was owned in the Dix family of Boston. So Americans really for the first time were able to import directly all these spectacular objects from India all the way to East Asia.
0: Uh, to turn away from sort of the, some specific things in the collection and, and more into some general trends that I noticed while looking at the exhibition when I visited and then reading the exhibition catalog. One of the things that comes up a lot is that uh, people in North and South America and in, in Europe described all of these Asian goods that were being imported as being from China, regardless of where in Asia they were actually from. And this actually included people. The enslaved Asians who came aboard the galleons were referred to as Chinos or Chinos. So why do you think China specifically became synonymous for all of Asia during this period?
5: You know, this is also a modern phenomenon. We still refer to porcelain ceramics as China, no matter where they're from. Um, But certainly in the 16th century and later, right at the moment of discovery, people in the Americas didn't fully understand where all these objects were coming from. And they were also coming on the same boats. So whether it was coming from the Philippines or coming from China or Japan or other parts of East Asia or even India, it was hard to differentiate um, exactly where... All of these goods were being produced. Um, And in Mexico, the Indian cloth was called Indiania, but they were also referring to um, all porcelains as from China and even uh, folding screens that could have come from Japan or China. They would often refer to them as being from China.
0: So, uh, there, there's a painting in the exhibition that is a cast painting, and these are paintings that were usually done in a series, and they kind of outlined this racial and ethnic hierarchy that emerged, especially in Mexico, uh, with the influence of all of these different factors. Um, and the, the reason that this is, this is in the exhibition is that the, the man's coat has obviously inspired by fabric and designs from India, but the people in the painting, are also really interesting because the painting is sort of documenting uh, a Spanish man, his African wife and their son. So I was really curious uh, if you had any insights into what exactly it was about the the, uh, social and, and ethnic atmosphere in Mexico that sort of spawned this whole genre of art about documenting how different races and classes worked together as families?
5: Mexico was a very complicated place in the 18th century. It was a global crossroads. And as a result, there were people from all over the world living there, including many, many different types of indigenous groups. There were obviously the European imports who came to colonize. There were African slaves and free blacks living in Mexico. There were also Asian slaves and free Asians living in Mexico. And as a result, people were very interested in the different interracial mixing that was taking place in Mexico, especially the Spaniards in Spain who were in charge of of controlling this uh, colonial place. And many of the Costa paintings were painted in large sets, and they were sent to Spain. And if you look at the Costa paintings, the depictions are, are fairly positive. People... Tend to be very well dressed and getting along and these were very positive statements painted by colonial Mexicans and sent to Spain, kind of advertising that yes, Mexico was very complicated, but everything was under control, so to speak. And remember, this was the time of the Enlightenment where, when people were very interested in organizing the natural world around them, including people and the same artists in Mexico who painted these Costa paintings or cast paintings, oftentimes also were painting similar paintings of birds and flowers from Mexico and the New World. So it's part of this larger interest in classifying and organizing um, the world around them.
0: I am so glad that we got to ask Dennis about these Casta paintings. I did my own research on them after I got home from the exhibition, but none of the research that I did made the connection that he just made that all of this was going on at the time of the Enlightenment when people were really into categorizing things and making taxonomies. Like that connection just had not come about from any of the things that I had read. So we're going to take another brief pause. For another word from a sponsor, and then we will move on to the conclusion of
4: this interview. That sounds like a fabulous
0: idea.
2: Culture, and invite you to walk in your authenticity. Listen to Life as a Gringo as a part of the Michael Tura Podcast Network, available on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.
6: Hey, everybody! Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter.
7: a Story of California Corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: So next up, uh, we're, Tracy's going to get into some of her last questions with Dennis, including about how his education, just like ours, really did not spend a lot of time on the Latin American history that is really a big part of this exhibition. So it's quite fascinating.
0: has been described as as revealing a largely overlooked history, and I think it's obvious from our conversation that uh, there are parts that, that people just have not learned about. Do you have any theories for why that is, for why this aspect of the colonial Americas is just not talked about very much?
5: Well, going through school, I didn't learn a lot about Latin American history, and that history certainly predates the British settlement in the Americas. And you know, to me, as an Americanist, I, and with the interest in Latin America and the pre-Hispanic past, the, the whole world has been opened up to me. It's a fascinating and very complicated history. And when you look at the trade, not only between Europe and the New World, but between Asia and the New World, you see Latin America and the, all of the Americas as really central to an astounding global history that we hope to bring out some aspects of in this new exhibition.
0: Do you think there was a reciprocal influence in Asia as it had more and more contact with Latin America?
5: There was, especially in places that were settled by Europeans, like Manila, for example. There's, there are loan words, words that go back and forth between the two places. Um, places like China And Japan and other areas of Asia that were large producers of luxury goods didn't really want a lot from the West in terms of objects. They could produce porcelains better than the West. They produced better textiles than the West, for example. But what they really wanted, especially in China, was silver, which was increasingly becoming a major component of the Chinese economy. And it was just at this moment when... When the Americas were discovered and vast quantities of silver were were discovered in central Mexico and Peru, now modern-day Bolivia, so the Americas became extremely wealthy right at this period when they are first connected with Asia, and they have what Asia wanted, which was the raw silver. So in payment for all the luxury goods that were being imported from Asia, they were sending silver from the Americas. And that's what kept this trade going and going so strong for so many centuries.
0: So during a lot of the same time period, Australia was also being colonized. Do you think there is a similar international fusion of artwork in colonial Australia as well?
5: Probably, but I have no idea about, about that. <laughs> it's one
0: of those things that I. That was my I,
5: next I, exhibition. Yeah,
0: I'm like, I know this is completely out of the scope uh, of of this particular <laughs> exhibition, but I am very curious to know if that would also be true. Um, apart from the desk, which I love so much, uh, which which has the maps of of a, a free African community, do you think any of the objects that are in this exhibition show an influence from enslaved Africans?
5: Well, we see an African woman in the Costa painting, and we also see the influence of Islamic art in the outside of the desk and bookcase. But there are the signs of other African influence in the art of the Americas is harder to find. And likewise, we don't have direct evidence that there were Asians at work in the, Americans, in the Americas Producing art as well. We know there were many Asians living in the Americas, but to the extent that they were actually artists and producing art, that is very unclear in the historical record.
0: So there are just so many different pieces in this exhibition, and they use so many different materials and styles. We've already talked about the desk a couple of times being a favorite of both of ours. Uh, Do you have any other particular favorites?
5: Another favorite of mine is a 17th or early 18th century Peruvian textile that is made by culturally Inca weavers in Peru, but it mimics the Chinese export textiles. And we have a wonderful example from the Metropolitan Museum of Art that we've paired with the MFA's spectacular Peruvian example. And it's the first time that we've brought these two textiles together, and it's fascinating to compare them side by side.
0: I agree with you. <laughs> I, I stood there. Yeah. I, I came to see the exhibition on on Friday, and I stood. In oh, front did you really? Oh, god. Did well. I live in I live in Boston. Our office is in, in Atlanta. I coincidentally am conducting an interview with you where I live from Atlanta. So I came to see the exhibition on Friday and I stood in front of the two of them and just sort of marveled at how uh, number one, how intricate and beautiful they both are, but how once you know what to look for, you can see all of the things that are obvious, an obvious Asian influence. And then all of these other little touches that are native to the area and um, and there are several things in the, in the exhibition that you can sort of see that same, oh, I, I see where the influence is and I see where the local pieces of it are. Um, so yeah, I really enjoyed it. I, it's beautiful. Um,
5: great. Thank you so much. <laughs>
0: you're welcome. So when, when you were getting ready to do this exhibition, it's, it's uh, clear through our conversation that, uh, that you, you wanted to sort of put together an exhibition that documented this piece of history that hasn't really been uh, congealed together in an American museum before. What did you think that was going to be like?
5: Well, it's a challenging project, and there have been many scholars who have worked on this topic over the years, and there have been exhibitions that have um, focused on various aspects of this very large topic. But this exhibition puts a lot of things together that I don't think people have seen before. It puts together art from Boston next to art from Quebec City, next to art from Mexico City or Lima, Peru or Quito, Ecuador to really take a broad view of the Americas during the colonial period. And that will be surprising to visitors as well.
0: So did the did the end result of of the exhibition how how did that compare to what you sort of initially expected when you started working on it
5: well it's like producing a hollywood movie you don't know how it's going to turn out in the end and you bring in objects from different collections gathered from different parts of the country we have a few international loans that and you you don't really know what they're going to look like together you cross your fingers and (laughs) hope it goes well But I have to say, we have a spectacular design team at the MFA, and they did an incredible job with the show and really brought these objects to life and were able to place things side by side and um, create an opportunity for objects to have conversations with each other across the Americas. And that, to me, is it just makes my day, makes my job so worthwhile.
0: That's really beautiful. Is, is there anything else that you want to make sure that our listeners know about the exhibition or the history that has inspired it?
5: Well, I hope they're excited about this topic, even if they don't know much about it coming into the show. But it's a beautiful exhibition uh, with a lot of really complicated stories of indigenous life in the Americas and colonial life in the Americas and um, how the Americas became a centerpiece in a new world.
0: Thank you so much. So, listeners, if you are in the Boston, Massachusetts area, this exhibition is ongoing until February 15th of 2016. And we're also going to link to the MFA's page on the exhibition so you can actually see what a lot of these objects look like and and get a better sense of, of the things that we are talking about. Thank you again so much, Dennis, for talking to me today.
5: Thank you, and I hope everyone comes to see the show.
0: <laughs> I, I encourage anyone who can do it to do it. I really, I thought it was very beautifully arranged with a lot of just intricate, delicate, lovely pieces that all tell a really unique story that I had not ever heard about, really, or or thought about until I got into the show.
5: Great! It's a it's a rare opportunity to see many of these objects together, and some for the very first time in public. So
0: Holly, I loved this interview and I loved the exhibition. I feel like so often when we are talking about stories about the colonial Americas, a lot of a lot of the stories that we tell are pretty tragic because a lot of times the the tragic stories are are not as focused on as much as like the more sort of patriotic inspiring this is what led us to be a great nation kind of stories uh in various history classes. So, like, that's one thing that is often overlooked. But another thing that's often overlooked is this part, like the various ways that art and decorative art, especially, fuse together all of these different elements of all of these different colonial influences to make something new.
4: And I am the appropriate level of jealous that you got to go bask in the glory of this <laughs> exhibition Yet now that we're done with all of the note-taking and all of the research and
0: all of the preparation and all of that, I am going to bring the exhibition catalog with me the next time I come to the office so that you can look all through it. And that's actually something that is also available to other people. Uh, it's available for purchase. It's called Made in the Americas, The New World Discovers Asia. And it's this really lovely hardcover book. It's 160 pages long, and it's just full of information and pictures of all of these objects and artworks that we talked about today. We're also going to link to all of them from our show notes.
4: So if you are in New England or traveling to that area, this exhibition is in the Museum of Fine Arts, Boston, until February 16th, 2016. Then it will head to the Winterthur Museum, Garden and Library in Delaware, and it will be there from March 26th. 2016 to January 8th of 2017. So you'll have a pretty significant window to get in there and see it. Uh, Winterthur is just outside Wilmington, and it's an hour or so from Philadelphia. So hopefully lots of our listeners will get to see this, because there's some absolutely spectacular pieces.
0: Yeah, we're definitely also, as I said earlier, going to link to the MFA's page for this exhibition, which has a slideshow of some of the uh, the pieces that are in it. It has a video from Dennis Carr talking about the exhibition. There's a lot of stuff to look at there in addition to the exhibition catalog and the exhibition
4: itself. And now do you have a little bit of listener mail for us?
0: I do have listener mail and it is from a little bit of an older episode but it was too interesting not to share. It is from Britt and Britt says, I just finished listening to the St. Kitt's Slave Revolt of 1834 and I thought I'd mention another island museum that actually does a great job of highlighting slavery in their history and engages visitors with a really interesting and informative exhibit without shying away from some truths. I'm going to pause le- reading the letter for a second to say we had said, I had said specifically at the beginning of that episode that I had been to several museums in the Caribbean and many of them glossed completely over the existence of slavery and its enormous influence on a lot of Caribbean islands. Um, and then that was not the case at all for the St. Kitts National Museum. So, to get back to the letter. Bermuda does not fit into the category of a Caribbean island. However, it shares a lot of post-colonial similarities, like an epic history of trade, the British Royal Navy basically taking over for a serious chunk of time, to our benefit, to be fair, and unfortunately, slavery. Their largest museum, the National Museum of Bermuda, has a breadth of exhibits that includes the good, bad, and ugly of the island's history. I grew up in Bermuda and spent a lot of time at the museum, first as a visitor, then as a research intern, and finally using it as the focus of my master's thesis. Part of my research involved poring over online reviews, looking at how visitors, in most cases American cruise tourists, liked or disliked the museum. A lot of people complained about the goat poo. It's true. They have goats on the property to maintain the grass, but they poo everywhere. And when I was a kid, my dad, who grew up on a farm, used to throw it at me all the time. The Big Hill, To Walk Up, Old Horror. But many people also commended the museum on their brave exhibit on slavery. The building that it is housed in underwent something crazy like a 10-year renovation, and I vaguely remember when they opened it and most of the exhibits inside, including the slave trade and slavery in Bermuda. There was a press conference that really addressed the topic. It started a discussion amongst the public and people outside of the museum world, And I even believe that the government issued an apology. Don't take that as gospel, though. My 10-year-old mind may have just imagined that. So basically, this was a long-winded way to say, cruise to Bermuda, go visit their awesome museum that's literally a stone's throw away from the cruise port, and go check out their great exhibit on slavery and a bunch of other really awesome ones with iPads. If you don't want to cruise slash fly over there, you should check out their Facebook slash Instagram since their website is still crazy outdated to see some of the awesome exhibits and their collections. Keep being awesome. I love the podcast and listen to it at all hours of the day. Britt, thank you so much, Britt, for writing. That is super interesting. And I want to specify I have not been to Bermuda or its museum.
4: (laughs) I would like to take Britt up on that invitation. Let's go.
0: Let's go right now. Uh, Maybe maybe when it's cold is when we should go. (laughs) So thank you, Britt, for writing to us about that. If you'd like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we are at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash MissedInHistory and on Twitter at MissedInHistory. Our Tumblr is at MissedInHistory.tumblr.com. And we're also on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash MissedInHistory. We have a new Instagram. Also, we are at MissedInHistory on Instagram. If you would like to come to our website, please, please do. We are going to have a picture of the desk that we spent so much time talking about today in our show notes, which we do for every episode. We're also going to have a link to this exhibition at the Museum of Fine Arts website. Lots of other awesome information. And you can come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com, to learn all kinds of other interesting stuff. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com.
2: issues affecting the Latin community, and much more. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community. Listen to Life as a Gringo on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: It's been almost 3,000 years, and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's Talk About Myths, Baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths, Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.